This reading is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. When you think of gentleness, what comes to mind? I can tell you what I don't associate with gentleness. The NFL, (laughs) UFC, sumo wrestling, presidential debates, and the controversy over the Starbucks Christmas cups that's on the internet, on social media. And there's probably so many other things, but these are the first things that came to my mind this week. But telling you what I don't associate with gentleness doesn't necessarily tell you what it is. Now, you might be asking, why are you talking about gentleness? That is not a very interesting topic. I can think of a lot more interesting topics. And I I grant you that. If I were sitting in your seat, too, I would be going like, okay, I don't read the Bible very often, but this is a great time to begin to read the Bible, beginning at Genesis, and see how far I get in the next 30 minutes. (laughs) But I want to talk to you about gentleness today because... Gentleness is something that that God wants to produce in the lives of every follower of Jesus. Gentleness is something that God is interested in producing in our lives if you're a follower of Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news that God is for us. And we've been in a conversation, for those of you who are new to grace, we've been in a conversation around the, the topic of being transformed into his image. We've been talking about the fact that God wants something for us. Not from us. And a lot of people's view of religion, and especially of Christianity, is that God wants something from us. And the reason why you come to church, and the reason why you read your Bible, and, is because you're paying back God for something that he's done for you. And that God wants something from you. And it's about this, can you, can you appease this deity? But when we look at the scripture, we see that God wants something for us. He wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to look like Jesus. And to look like Jesus is to be fully human. It's to be fully alive. It's not to be more spiritual or more religious. It's to be truly human. 
To look at Jesus is to see what we were intended to look like before sin and brokenness entered the world. And when Paul sets out to describe this, he describes it in Galatians 5 and he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. So we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And we've been asking the question from the very beginning, why does God want to do this? And the answer is because he loves us so much. That our transformation flows out of God's unfathomable love for us. And how does he do this? How does he do this transformation in the lives of followers of Jesus? He does it through his spirit. The spirit who indwells us. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't just give us a book and say, now go out and try hard. He gives us his spirit. The living presence of Jesus is in us to be able to then receive the transformation he wants to do in our lives. It's I mean, it's so exciting. It's very exciting. So if this is something God is committed to doing in the lives of, of all followers of Jesus through his spirit, both individually and also in us as a community. I think at, at times we, we tend to think of anything that someone is talking about with regards to Christianity as being solely individual. But really, when Paul is talking about the fruit of the spirit, he's talking about a community that is marked by these things. So in this case, we could say, are we a community that is marked by gentleness? And do we care about the fact of whether or not we are a community marked by gentleness? Because God is concerned to make us into that kind of a community that then acts as a light to the world. And that's why he's given us, again, the spirit. So if God is committed to doing this in our lives, how would we know if gentleness is present? How would we recognize it? Well, here's my observation. As I was thinking about this week, it seems from my observation that for many Christians that gentleness is associated with niceness. Gentleness is associated with niceness. In fact, for many Christians, it's possible that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 has have largely been replaced with niceness. So what's a Christian? It's someone who's nice who's uh, pleasant, who's agreeable, uh, they're easy to get along with, they fit in with other people, they're, they're, they're very nice people. And we humans seem to be drawn to niceness. It's, it's comforting. But my question is, is it compelling? Is it really compelling? Perhaps this is why Christianity in America is no longer very compelling like it was in the first century. In the first century, it was very compelling and the rate of conversion was just incredible if you trace it. Because you don't have to be a Christian to be nice. You don't have to be a Christian to be nice. I meet nice people all the time. Southern California is full of them. We moved 17 times growing up. I know what people are like in other places. We lived in New England before we came to Southern California. We went to New England because we believed that God was calling us to go up there in a very, very hard area where the gospel really has not really settled in very much. It's what historians call a burnover district. It once had the gospel, but then it's, it's really hard soil. And so my wife and I went up there for four years to begin to try to bring the gospel to people. And we knew no one, and we went up there, and we went to New England. And I'm telling you, if there's any New Englanders here, hopefully I don't insult you too much, but those people are survivors. They are tough. I'll never forget one of my first experiences. I thought, well, you know, how do you, how do you start? Well, you, you need to get to know some people and you need to, be, yeah, I'll be nice to them, but also then hopefully to show them some love. I was going to the post office 
this is in Connecticut, is going to the post office to set up a post office box for eventually for the church mailing list. And I was going to the post office and I was moving towards the door right as another woman was about ready to enter the door. Now, I had been taught from a very young age that you step aside and you open a door for a lady. So I did that and this woman stopped. She did not go through the door and she stopped and she looked at me with this look of disdain and disgust on her face, with this look of like, what's wrong with you? And I thought to myself, welcome to New England. <laughs> because you don't trust anybody. You don't trust anybody. You're, you know, you're just hard and you're just, you know, everybody's out for themselves. It felt like that for me. Now, what we did find was if you get invited into those relationships, they are lifelong relationships. They're committed to you for life, those people are. So they're good people. So don't hear me as being bad, that they're bad. So then we came to Southern California, and there's just nice people everywhere. There's sun, and there's niceness, and there's sun, and there's niceness, and there's sun, and there's niceness. And it's just, it's just wonderful. And I'm thankful to be in Long Beach. And, and it's, it's wonderful because you just meet people all the time who, who like to talk to you. It doesn't matter what you're doing. They like to talk to you. And, they, I mean, and, and it's also very important because if you're going to hold down a job, you need to be nice. I mean, have you ever met a, a, a rude or, I almost said nude, a rude or nasty person at Trader Joe's? I mean, those people are really wonderfully nice. They're pleasant people. And they try to get to know your name so that when you come back, they know you by name. That's, that's compelling. I mean, that niceness is compelling in our, in our culture. But it doesn't take, you don't have to be a Christian to be nice. The last time I spoke, I cited a uh, retirement speech that was given by Stanley Hauerwas. It was in his um, honor. He retired uh, from Duke University, Duke Divinity School. And he was a prolific writer, prolific speaker. And in this retirement speech, they, a quote was cited of his. that we, He says this, and it's behind me. We live in an age where secular people don't find Christianity interesting enough to reject. We, don't, we live in an age where secular people don't find Christianity interesting enough to reject. And the alternative that was being suggested was that we make Christianity interesting enough that people, secular people would realize what they are rejecting. In other words, we, ne- we need to make Christianity interesting again. Now, the question is how? And at the time, I did not give to you Stanley Hauerwas's remedy that he suggested in this recorded lecture by him, in a speech by him. But here's what he said. He said that Christians need to learn to not lie. He said, Christians need to learn to not lie. And I'm telling you, that arrested my attention when he said that. I almost like, I was running at the time. I almost paused and, you know, turned off my iPod to just stop and go like, wait a minute, what? What was he saying? And he went on to say that Christians have substituted niceness for telling the truth to each other. Christians have substituted niceness for telling the truth to each other. So why do Christians need to tell the truth to each other? I'd like to invite you to turn to Ephesians. We're going to be in Galatians, but I want you to turn over to Ephesians real quickly in your Bibles. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Ephesians. If you don't, there's a blue one underneath your seat. It's page 978. Page 978. Ephesians 4. And Paul is talking here in, to these Christians in Ephesus 
And he talks about in verse 14 about becoming, or verse 13 about uh, be, uh, attaining to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. He's talking about maturing tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's talking about maturity. He's talking about growing up. He's talking about becoming like Jesus. And he's saying embedded in that process of growing up is speaking the truth in love to each other. What is at stake if we don't speak the truth to love, speak the truth in love to each other in a community? We won't grow up. Our maturity will be stunted. Your maturity will be stunted. My maturity will be stunted. Our maturity will be stunted. So Paul says there is really something here at stake in speaking the truth to each, in love to each other. Now, as I reflected on this, it, you know, and I reflected on it, uh, there were some other things that happened before this that was causing me to reflect on this. But I do need to admit something today, and that is that I haven't always been truthful in my role as a pastor. And I realized that as I was going over this and as I was thinking about this. Is it lying, as Stanley Hauerwas suggests? Well, if, if you can categorize sin into sins of commission and sins of omission, I would say that mine has probably fallen into the latter, more sins of omission, because I really didn't set out to deceive anyone. But I can see ways in which I've substituted niceness for truth-telling in this role. And why? Why do I do that? And that's one of the questions I had to ask myself. And I think the reason why is because I think I've wanted people's approval. And at times, people's approval feels much more tangible, much more valuable than God's approval. I mean, if I hear someone give me some kind of, a, of, of, a, of an affirming word for something that I do, that's tangible. I can, I can, I can hear it. I can feel it. If someone wants me to... to to give them a word of counsel or they want to meet with me or they want me to speak at something or, I mean, that's, that's a way of, of measuring tangible approval for myself. If the church grows, it says something about me. If the church doesn't grow, it says something about me too. So it's easy to resort to cutting deals. I'll offer my niceness for your approval. But what does Paul say? What does he say is best for Jesus' church? Certainly not that. He says it's speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Why? Because it builds up the body of Christ. Niceness might create esteem for myself, but speaking the truth of love builds up the people of God. It builds up the body of Christ. It builds up followers of Jesus. The first one builds me up. The second one builds up the work of God in the world. And this is where gentleness comes in, I think, in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is where it comes into play. So if you want to turn over to Galatians 6, all right? It's right before Ephesians, so it's just like one page. 
Galatians 5, I'm sorry. The word gentleness is used in other places besides just here. In some of the, in one of the last texts, the last word that we had that I looked at from the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it was found in no other place in the Bible, really. But the word gentleness is used in James 1.21 to describe how we're to receive the word of God. In 2 Timothy 2.25, it describes the posture that a Christian leader is to use as a Christian leader corrects those who oppose sound doctrine. It's supposed to be done with gentleness. In James 3.13 and 1 Peter 3.14, it says that it, 3.4, says that gentleness is to mark the lives of every follower of Jesus. So gentleness is played out in other places in the New Testament. But for our purposes today, I want to limit my focus in the remaining time on Paul's usage of gentleness here in the letter to the Galatian Christians. If you're looking down in Galatians 5, after Paul mentions the gentleness in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, he then shows what it looks like in practice. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I put the NIV up there because I thought it was really good. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. In the Greek, it, it literally says, you spiritual ones. So it's basically saying, you who live by the Spirit, this is what you're supposed to be doing. So it's not a super category of people that are spiritual, and I'm not as spiritual, so I don't have to do this, but it's people who have the life of the Spirit. You're called to be doing this. That's what Paul is telling us here in this verse. Now, what is the situation he's talking about here? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Well, I think it's, it's ambiguous. We're not told. But it's very possible that Paul has in mind something out of the list that he's already given to us in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Kind of that, that list of the flesh. So it's very possible that someone was caught in the act in something that is named here in, in 5, 19 to 21. And now Paul is appealing that to this community, to restore this person to their former state, to bring them back into a restored relationship where the relationships have been broken. Because if you look at those, that kind of that sin list in 5, 19 to 21, it's always about relational damage that is done. So he's saying, restore the relationship, work to restore it. And Paul says, do it with a spirit of gentleness. So what does gentleness look like in this setting? Well, some of your translations might say meekness or forbearance, but I don't think that word definition alone captures uh, how this really works. So what I want to do is I want to give you another possible scenario that might help to capture this for you. When I was, um, I went, my undergraduate work was at Ohio State University, and I was involved in, uh, I was at pre-med, and so because of that, I wanted to get experience during the summer breaks in college in the medical field. Because my father was an orthopedic surgeon at the time, he got me into uh, this surgery room, and I was able to then uh, be employed as an OR technician. And what that means is that I would go into rooms, I would be assigned to a room, just like everybody else who's an OR tech, I'd be assigned to a room for the day, and then whatever the caseload might be for that day, then you scrubbed in, or you, you know, you assisted, or whatever it was that um, needed to be done in that room. I remember one time, though, that um, I was assigned to a particular room, and I was assigned to a, um, an eye surgeon. And I had never scrubbed in on eye surgery before, 
And um, one of the things that I realized is that eye surgeons need a very delicate touch. I mean, think about it. If, you're, if, you, if someone's operating on your eye, you want them to have a really delicate touch, all right? And because of that, if you, if you know an eye surgeon, they typically don't do any hard, they don't do any yard work, they don't get calluses on their hands, and they avoid all cuts. And most surgeons do that, but eye surgeons in particular have to have very sensitive touch on the end of their fingers, and that's why they can't get calluses on the ends of their fingers, they have to be able to feel so gently those instruments and, every, and, and to be able to do that eye surgery. So I was asked to scrub in, and they were called first thing, meaning that it was me and the eye surgeon. And uh, he was Asian, and he had a very heavy accent. And I was really nervous. So I want to show you, I had to hold one of those instruments right there. That's a retractor. It looks like a rake, but it's about this long. So if, if you're shaking... If you're nervous, that nervousness is transferred down that instrument. And here's this eye surgeon, and I'm retracting. I'm retracting, you know, I, won't, I hope no one passes out about right now. <laughs> I won't tell any family stories. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I had to retract, and, and, I was, and evidently whatever I was nervous about was, <laughs> was transferring down that, that, that instrument. And that eye surgeon said some things to me that I won't repeat, but he was very displeased with my abilities in that surgery room that day. And I, I just, you know, it was hard. It was hard, I'll say that. Um, but one of the things that I realized was that eye surgeons and surgeons in general, I came to appreciate this, was that they need to have strong hands with a soft touch. They need to have strong hands with a soft touch. And I think this captures the meaning of gentleness in this context. It's strong hands with a soft touch. It's a compassionate, tender approach towards someone, someone's weakness, their blindness, their failure, their sin. A gentle person still speaks truth in love to you because they see a better way. They see God's way for you. And they want God's way for you. They still speak truth to you. And even if there is something painful to address, the other person addresses you out of their love, out of their hope for you. It's strong hands with a soft touch. And our model for this is Jesus himself. And that's why you need to immerse yourself in the, in the Gospels because it's interesting that Jesus only recorded self-description. His only recorded self-description is found in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says what? I am gentle and humble in heart. When, when pressed to describe himself, Jesus, out of all the virtues he embodied, chooses to identify himself as gentle. Now think about that as you think about his interactions with his disciples. These are these men that he traveled with, that he ate with, that he, he had conversations with on the dusty roads of Palestine. And the disciples' track record with Jesus was flawed by fear and hesitation. And while they came from various walks of life, the one thing they shared in common was their dullness and an embarrassing inability to grasp what Jesus was all about. They complained, they misunderstood, they argued, they wavered. They deserted, they denied, and they really didn't even believe in Jesus and what he was about until three years into the relationship. So for those of you who say, oh yeah, when he said follow me, they all became Christians, read your Bibles again. 
But Jesus' reaction to their broken, inconsistent discipleship was one of unending love. And John describes it this way. He says in John 13, 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. What a beautiful picture. And that love was a faithful love and it was a love that was marked by gentleness toward them. So here's my question to you. What would it be like, all right? Listen to me here. What would it be like to be part of a community where you know there is someone who knows you well and loves you enough to speak the truth to you? Not to take you down a notch, but because they love you, they know you well, they want to speak the truth to you. Because they see the potential that is found in Christ and they don't want you to squander the opportunities to live fully into the life of Jesus. Because they're for you, because they, are love, because they, they love you, they want to speak the truth in love to you. Now, how does that sound to you? Besides good, John, does that sound appealing and scary at the same time? I mean, that, that feels a little scary, doesn't it? Because it, it has to have both of those. We have, to, we have to be in a community where we allow ourselves to be known, and that's risky, because it's only as we are known that someone can step into our lives and look and see the potential of what Christ wants to do and then say, I need to speak the truth in love to you because there's a better way for you. And I think that one of the things that, that perhaps holds us back, and this is something that as we were praying beforehand and as I was praying this morning, the word that kept on coming to me, to me is there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. I think that one of the things that is holding us back as a congregation is fear. I really do. I think that we, I think we, we sense that God wants to do something with us I sense that we sense there's a freedom for us. There's nothing that we can point to and say there's somebody or something holding us back, you know, external or forces or, you know, a structure or politics or dysfunctional leadership. I mean, too dysfunctional leadership. Um, but I think that there's a sense of fear. I don't know exactly what that fear is, but I think the thing that God keeps on pressing upon my heart is this sense that we have got to address the issue of fear, that we have to kind of step up and we have to basically just go for it. We have to go for it. I've got nothing to hide because I'm covered by God's grace. Uh, if you get to know me and you don't like me, um, God still does. So I'll try to find the next person that might stay with me when you, if you decide I, my case is too much for you. But you see, if, if we're going for it with each other to, to live our lives fully and live it in the open to be known so that we can receive someone's truthing to us in love with gentleness, think about what that's going to do to us in terms of our own maturity, growing up to the stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ. It's so that Jesus will be big. Jesus will be large. There's something about this process that it, in the end, it's not about, oh, I've become more mature and I've checked it off, but rather it's Jesus becomes big. And people can't ignore Jesus. Christianity becomes interesting again. So what might be the next step that we take? Because it really takes the spirit of God 
it takes the spirit of God in this, but what is the next step we might take? Well, on previous occasions I've been up here, I've asked you on at least twice, who might Jesus want to show his love to through you? To whom might Jesus want to show his love through you? And I've asked you to come up with a name as you listen to God. And I want to follow up with that today, and that is this. If, that, if God has given you a name, and maybe a name comes to you right now, then my question to you is, how might Jesus want to show his love through you to that person? What might Jesus' love look like for this person? How does he want to show it through you to this person? All right? And I know the heat just kicked on. People are fanning themselves. All of a sudden, it got really hot in here. I don't know what's happening. So I'm going to stop this sermon really fast before we all pass out. But I'll go ahead and address the elephant in the room because some of you are looking at me like, do you realize how hot it's getting in here right now? I have no idea what's going on, but I'll address it. So what I want to do is ask you to take a moment right now and just ask yourself before the Lord who that person is and what might it look like to show Christ's love to that person, all right? And just take, hold this space for just a second and just pause and ask the Lord to show you that and then, and then we'll pray for those people, okay? So let's just quietly ask God, who is that name and how might Jesus want to love this person through you? Let's bring those names before the Lord right now, all right? Those names and those ways and, and asking, um, asking Jesus to give you the courage, the boldness to take the risk to possibly, if you have the opportunity this week, to step into loving them with Jesus' love this week. So Father, I ask now that through your spirit, you would enable us to boldly and with great joy and with great courage to love the people who are around us, the people specifically that you've given us names and uh, that we might be your love and bring your life to people around us, that we might embody this fruit, that we might embody what it looks like to represent you, Jesus, here in this world. Thank you for the great opportunities you give to us to be part of your community, be part of your kingdom, to be part of your work in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.